The football season is reaching its conclusion and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets including first, last or anytime goalscorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got a crucial week of fixtures left to play in the Premier League and with Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. Coming up today, Chelsea are closing in on Bayer Leverkusen's Kai Havertz. I'll bring you the latest details on that with the help of our Chelsea correspondent Liam Toomey. We ask whether this is the start of a new era of big spending by Roman Abramovich. Our Watford man Adam Leventhal will explain how the dismissal of Nigel Pearson came about, where the club goes next and what role Troy Deeney might play in that. Plus other lines in my column including Maurizio Pochettino turning down a job offer and West Ham battling Crystal Palace for a young star from the championship. Right now The Athletic is free for 30 days, bringing you the very best football writing around. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up. This week also marks the start of my new weekly YouTube Q&A show, Ask Ornstein, answering the very best questions provided by our brilliant Athletic subscribers. Head over to the TIFO Podcast YouTube channel on Tuesday morning to watch the first video and don't forget to subscribe to the channel for more superb podcast content. From my column today, it looks like Chelsea are closing in on the signing of Kai Havertz from Bayer Leverkusen. Uh, the situation's actually pretty simple. Chelsea are currently the only club ready to pay what we think would be an acceptable fee for Bayer Leverkusen. That's around about €80 million Euros after add-ons. So that could take the form of 65 plus 15, 70 plus 10 or, or something in that sort of ballpark. My understanding is that personal terms are all but agreed and that means that the salary is done and dusted and it's just some small details and clauses that would still need to be ironed out. There would be no problem around that. The 21-year-old attacker is keen to move to Stamford Bridge after holding some talks with Frank Lampard. It was described to me as always being his dream to represent Real Madrid but we know that these things don't always work out how you plan. And Real Madrid have made it clear that they can't do the deal this summer from a financial point of view, needing to shift so many players out of the club and and many of those players um, not wanting to go. And I wouldn't say that Chelsea is seen as a backup option for Havertz. It's something that he would be really enthused about. In their own right, they've presented to him a project, a vision for where he would fit into that, uh, a youthful squad and the manager, of course, that really excites him. So I think they're going to wait a short time, he and his camp, to see if any options that aren't currently on the table come forward in case they do have a sort of decision to make. And so will a Real Madrid-style option appear? It doesn't look that way, though. And it seems that Chelsea are now in the driving seat to sign another uh, highly rated attacker for great expense. But crucially, they seem pretty adept at balancing their books at Stamford Bridge. Marina Granovskaya, the director uh, who's in charge of the transfer business, will be charged with making sure that 
Chelsea continue to comply with financial fair play, even though those rules have been relaxed. They don't want to rely on the wealth of Roman Abramovich solely. They want to run a more sustainable model. And that means that we'll be seeing players leaving as well, some experienced players and also, interesting, some some young players. And we can talk more about all of that now because I'm joined by our Chelsea writer, Liam Toomey. Into the FA Cup final, top four destiny in their own hands. Ziyech and Werner already on board, pole position to get Havertz. Liam, things are looking pretty good at Chelsea. It's quite incredible when you consider... You know, the way things looked even even a week ago after the Sheffield United defeat and that, that limp performance and where that left Chelsea in the top four race, now they have that distinct possibility to to cap, I would say at this point, more likely than not, Champions League qualification with a major trophy in Lampard's first season. And if they are able to add Kai Havertz to Hakim Ziyech and Timo Werner, they will have done an amazing transfer window, really, before the window even opens. It is all looking very rosy at Stamford Bridge right now. Tell us about the piece you wrote on The Athletic recently about how Kai Havertz would improve Chelsea if he was to arrive at Stamford Bridge. The piece came from the fact, really, that I hadn't actually watched a lot of Havertz and I felt obligated, given the way things were going, to, to become more familiar with him. So I, I watched an awful lot of clips and broke down a lot of his film, a lot of his best actions for Bayer Leverkusen over the last couple of seasons to try to boil down what makes him such a special player, what makes him a unique talent and why Europe's top clubs are, are all after him. And um, and there were some really interesting things that I found and I, I thought one of the things that struck me first was the way he attacks the penalty area from deep positions. It's very reminiscent of Frank Lampard, actually. It's not, <laughs> it's not that difficult to see why Lampard would really like him. Um, he's got a natural instinct for identifying space in the box, arriving at just the right time to 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 run onto a cutback or or an accurate cross, and then when he gets there, he's a very clinical, calm finisher. Remarkably so for his age, really. It's worth mentioning that you know while that's maybe similar to the likes of Frank Lampard or Michael Ballack, who he's been widely compared to in Germany, um, neither of those players were doing what Kai Havertz has been doing at the age that he is. And and that is why people are so excited about him. And then you add to that the fact that this season, under Peter Bosch, he's been deployed increasingly as a false nine, particularly since the, uh, the resumption of play in the Bundesliga. And that has allowed him to showcase a different side to his game, playing a little bit more maybe with his back to goal, um, linking play, creating for others, and, uh, he, you know, you look at his assist numbers, they're not spectacular. But if you look at the more advanced numbers, which is something else I did for the piece, he's one of the best shot creators in the Bundesliga. Uh, I think maybe the best outside of Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund. It's not hard to see why so many clubs would love the opportunity to build around him for the next, you know, five years plus. And it seems that Chelsea have that opportunity if they want to take it. Chelsea's interest has been well documented for a while, but it was really after the DFB Cup final that things started to gather pace. That was on the 4th of July. Leverkusen's defeat in that game was followed by Havertz confirming to the club definitively that he wanted to 
move on and pursue his career elsewhere this summer and not wait any longer. He doesn't want to play in the Bundesliga anymore, so that's why uh, we mentioned Real Madrid, but Chelsea really coming to the fore. And they seem to be taking advantage of a, of a market that's particularly difficult for a number of clubs in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. So when you look at the situation we've already discussed at Real Madrid, then you see Bayern Munich, who were also keen, but were suggesting a sort of smaller down payment this summer and more to follow further down the line. By Leverkusen said, OK, but we will keep him for the next season and Havertz doesn't want that. So that's not an option. Manchester United uh, held some conversations and expressed some interest, but they've got a congested sort of lineup in the centre of the pitch. Meanwhile, uh, the focus of their recruitment this summer is a right-sided player. We know the f- first choice candidate is Jaden Sancho. And if they are to complete that deal, it will cost them a huge amount of money that then wouldn't leave much left over and certainly not the level of finance required to get Kai Havertz from Leverkusen. I was told the likes of Manchester City are not in for him. Maybe he's not quite the style that Pep Guardiola is looking for. I mean, you mentioned Balak there. Others have mentioned the Zidane-style mould when they've talked to me about Havertz. So when I talk to people around Chelsea on this, fans especially, and reporters like you who cover them closely, I try and figure out where he would fit into the team. And I presume it would sort of a door would be opened up by departures for players. Uh, And that's what I really want to talk to you about now. Where would he fit into the team and who might have to leave to to make space for him? Yeah, that's the really intriguing element of all of this, I think. There will be departures this summer from Chelsea and they they certainly need to to balance, if not the exact transfer spending, then certainly um, trim the wage bill a bit. But when you look at some of the attackers that that Chelsea have, they're all of the age profile that are going to be part of Chelsea's plans for for quite a long time. You know, likes of Tammy Abraham, Mason Mount, Christian Pulisic, Callum Hudson-Odoi, and of course, Timo Werner coming in. Hakim Ziyech is is going to be 27 by the time he plays his first Premier League game, but he's going to be around for a few years. So it's going to be contested um, with the the players that, that Chelsea have next year. But I think they're taking the approach with... Havertz that he's so good that if you can get a player of his caliber you get him and worry about the rest later it's somewhat similar to the attitude that they they took in the summer of 2012 when they already had one matter they knew they were bringing in Oscar but when the opportunity arose to to sign Eden Hazard then the best young player in Europe as Kai Havertz can lay a claim to being now they just went out and did the deal and they didn't worry about how these three number 10s might all play together and how you might balance the team. They they leave that up to the coach. That will be Lampard's task. <laughs> if they can get a player of, of Havertz calibre, then they can build everything around him and, and things over time will make a bit of sense. But Marina Granovskaya will be crunching the numbers and doing her calculations as we speak, I'm sure. Um, She's done a fine job of balancing the books in recent times and that will have to continue. It's my understanding that we could see some uh, departures of younger players even potentially uh, and certainly we know about some more experienced players who could be on their way out this summer Liam. Yeah I think that's inevitable um, because Chelsea's squad is getting bigger as I mentioned the the wage bill was already I think the third highest in the Premier League uh, and that that will need to be trimmed you've got certain players that aren't particularly central to Lampard's plans who are on big money I'm thinking 
of players like Marcus Alonso. Um, Danny Drinkwater is on six figures out on loan. Uh, I think selling him would be Marina Granovskaya's greatest achievement, probably. <laughs> but um, it's going to be a, a, a tough, a tough task for for Granovskaya because the early signs are that that this transfer market is going to be a buyer's one. So that works for Chelsea in terms of getting the players they want, their, their top targets. But on the other side of this. It's going to be difficult to to find buyers of the level that that they want of the of the fees that they want for the players that Lampard no longer considers integral. And you look at someone like Jorginho, who has clearly fallen down the pecking order at Chelsea in in recent weeks. You know, I think Lampard would not stand in his way if there was an offer that came from a certain Italian manager at a certain mm-hmm. Italian club um, for him this summer but the the problem is do Juventus have the money for that deal and, and the indications are that they don't so I think that's just one of the challenges that Granovskaya will face and we know she's very talented at, at maximising revenue from, from player sales but she's going to be pressed on that this summer I think Yeah, space will also be uh, made available by the departure of Pedro and very good chance that William will follow. Um, There are suggestions that Kurt Zuma uh, would like to leave the club. You mentioned Alonso. There's also Emerson uh, behind him at left back too. So it could be a very interesting um, few months ahead. And I think in these calculations, you know, Chelsea will also be looking to make profit from the sale of young players from their academy, uh, which they've done in the recent past, and and also uh, some of the army of players who are out on loan. And it sort of brings me nicely on, on to the final question. Uh, in January, you wrote about how the huge wage bill you mentioned shows that Chelsea are not really sustainable without Champions League football. Now, with the relaxation of FFP rules, are we seeing a new push by Roman Abramovich to make Chelsea big spenders once again? Or is it a more sort of sustainable model they are really adamant on driving towards well I don't think we'll ever see the the type of net spends that we saw from Chelsea in Abramovich's first couple of years of ownership and that partly because I don't think Abramovich sees the the need for that because Chelsea are building from a higher base these days um, but also because I don't think he sees necessarily the the value in that because the 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 top end of the transfer market has been in recent years so much more competitive with Manchester City, with PSG. City, of course, we're expecting to continue to be aggressive now that they've um, been victorious at Cass. Um, but, uh, but Chelsea have traditionally been very good at identifying unique opportunities in the transfer market. And when they do so, moving quickly to take advantage of them. And I mentioned the example of Hazard in, in 2012. Obviously, you look, you know, signing Angolo Kante, Diego Costa, um, Cesc Fabregas, you know, making the most of release clauses, um, moving quickly when they get an indication that that quality players want to come to them. And they recognise this summer is difficult for a lot of their rivals. And that means they have an opportunity at a player like Kai Havertz, at a player like Timo Werner that they wouldn't otherwise have. And this is Chelsea building on what they do best in the transfer market, which is seeing these opportunities and moving quickly to capitalise on them. 
Well, this feels like a bit of a blue day for Chelsea, but uh, they'll be put to the test at Anfield on Wednesday night. And then, of course, uh, a crucial final game uh, of the season next weekend. And then it's on to the FA Cup final. So, Liam, thanks very much for your time. And uh, I suspect you'll be a busy guy in the coming weeks. (laughs) I suspect so too. Thanks, David. There's plenty more to read from Liam over on The Athletic and you can hear more from him on our Chelsea podcast, Straight Out of Cobham. Hello, I'm James Richardson, host of the Totally Football Show, now part of The Athletic's podcast network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletic subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on The Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. Next up is our Watford expert, Adam Leventhal, after the Hornets confirmed the sacking of manager Nigel Pearson on Sunday. Pearson took to social media to say, I've been overwhelmed by the well wishes I've received from Watford supporters and the football community. Thank you all for your kind messages. Although not able to finish the task I was brought in to achieve, I wish Watford all the best for their final two games. Cheers. Nige. Well, Adam, many seem stunned at this news, even though Watford are a club uh, who sack managers more than most. But was it a surprise to you and to Nigel Pearson? I think on the face of it, yes, he will have been surprised because he, he won't have been used to working in this sort of environment. And he would have thought there are only two games to go. Surely, surely even the Pozzos Uh, won't sack me uh, with only two games to go. Um, But I think on balance, he would have had an inkling, especially after the performance against West Ham, that the hierarchy wouldn't have been happy with that sort of showing. You know, for people that aren't aware and weren't watching it on a Friday night, they might have been doing better things. They didn't perform at all well from the very start. They were two goals down within the first 10 minutes. They conceded another goal before half time in a game that they needed to at least just avoid defeat. If they'd taken a point, that would have been seen as a a great result. But for them not to have turned up for such a key game against another relegation rival uh, would have been deemed as a big negative black mark against him. And also... The fact that we learnt at The Athletic that he'd been involved in an exchange of of views with the owner after the game at the London Stadium, then I think that that would have maybe taken away some of the surprise when the decision was finally made. You don't necessarily, although he's been involved in sort of disagreements with hierarchical figures at at previous football clubs, you don't usually um, look forward to a harmonious relationship when you get involved in a a stand-up row with the owner. So, yes qualified surprise but he might have had an inkling that it was coming after after things sort of blew up a little bit at West Ham. I was trying to canvas opinion on this with people from within the game uh, on Sunday evening and there was a bit of a split. I thought it would be overwhelmingly shocked and surprised. Many people pointed out how well he did after uh, coming in as manager and the fact that Watford are in this position uh, with a credible chance of surviving owes a huge amount to Pearson. But on the flip side, those who have watched their performances closely since the restart have been highly unimpressed. 
there have been two victories, but especially in the West Ham game, it didn't look great. Which side of the fence do you sit on on that one, Adam? I think it's a very difficult one because the, the overall picture is, yes, he's come in and he's taken Watford from rock bottom to outside of the, the relegation zone. And on paper, that is what he was charged with doing. But there has been a significant drop-off since the initial bounce that he got when they won four games out of five. Uh, they beat Manchester United, they beat Wolves, they beat Aston Villa, they beat Bournemouth. So, you know, big clubs, but also relegation rivals uh, as well. So I think that on the face of it, it will have surprised a lot of people. But yeah, watching the games, the theme, especially since lockdown, have been slow starts and slightly confused starts, to be honest, not necessarily showing that there's been um, a huge amount of tactical nous put into how the team has been prepared. And I think when the hierarchy is scrutinising these things so closely because they know that the margins are so tight, then I think that that's why they have ultimately made this decision. Yes, it came to a head against West Ham, but tactically, also in terms of his substitutions, and that was also brought to a head at West Ham as well. He shuffled things around, and then when Watford were getting a bit of momentum in the game in the second half, he made a couple of changes. One might have been enforced with Troy Deeney having that knee injury, but another one was a little bit confused so I think in general they took the view that yeah we might be able to get another little bounce before these final two games of the season even if that bounce is keeping the score down against Manchester City then they may well take it because it, it may well be that it comes down to goal difference. Something you and I have been discussing is that perhaps this had been in the owners minds for a, for a couple of weeks now even though it has only just been executed but I have another conflict Pearson was surely the best man to try and get them through those final two games, given that he's put them in this position and there's a good chance in, in them surviving. What can Hayden Mullins and Graham Stack do that Nigel Pearson couldn't? But equally, with Pearson gone, and this is a bit of a cynical view, if the technical director, the, the hierarchy at Watford, would like things to be being done differently, is it easier for them to relay that to the interim coaches than it might have been to Pearson? I think so. I, I think that that's, that's bang on because that's not to say that, that Hayden Mullins and Graham Stack are simply there as, as yes men, but they are going to be just naturally more more malleable because, you know, Nigel Pearson is is an experienced head coach. He's got his own opinions. He's also not used to being um, probably put upon quite as much as he has been at, at Watford because Filippo Giraldi, who's the technical director, is is very active in terms of being close to the dugout, being on the touchline at the end of games, being around the dressing room as well. So I think they will have thought, yes, let's just clear the slate as we did with Kike Sanchez Flores, bring in Hayden Mullins and bring in Graham Stack and maybe we can all have a bit of joined up thinking. Um, I think also in terms of how the players uh, reacted the last time, I mean, it is funny when you look back at this season and I think, right, hang on a minute, so how many coaches do we have? So yeah, after after mm -hmm. Kike Sanchez-Flores had gone, when Mullins and Stack took over, they actually produced a really good performance at Leicester City. It was a 2-0 defeat, but they, it was, they were in the game all the way. And then they picked up a point at home against Crystal Palace. And I think another point which is important to make is that, yes, they might 
believe that they can get their message across to to Mullins and Stack better than they can with Pearson for these final two games. But if, as I suspect, and this is due to suggestions um, from sources, that there was quite a significant disagreement involving a couple of players and Nigel Pearson and potentially uh, Craig Shakespeare as well, which may well be normal in a, in a dressing room environment. But if that has led to a situation where the players simply weren't going to be listening to Pearson and Shakespeare anymore, then you're better off simply with with another voice in there to, to actually see if you can you can somehow muddle together maybe just one more point out of these last two games. Well, you've written that there may actually be another voice in there as well, uh, a member of the current playing squad in there with Mullins and Stack. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, it's been suggested to me, and I think this would probably... Um, back up some of the stories that I've heard about what happened in the dressing room, that that Troy Deeney is obviously a, a significant character at the football club. Everyone knows all about him and he's, he's outspoken. But I think that maybe in this final uh, couple of games, the fact that Troy maybe won't be able to play in both of them, considering he's got this this quite significant knee injury that he's playing through the pain for, uh, that they might all sort of join forces even more than they have done in the past and that he can really be lent on by Stack, who he gets on very well with, and, and Hayden Mullins as well. And it can almost be like a, a trio and that uh, it, it's very much joined up. There isn't going to be any sort of rolling of eyes in the in the dressing room when, when a manager suggests something and the captain isn't quite sure. They will all be on the same page for this. And, I, you know, I mentioned in the piece that he'll almost be like a, a quasi player coach, which effectively is is what a captain is. But, but I think think that you know if Troy has sort of led this team out for the second half at West Ham after a little bit of a difficult team talk and sort of said look come on let's just let's do this for us we're the we are the ones that are going to suffer at the end of the day if we get relegated then maybe that's the the best thing to do at this stage you know rely on the leadership of of Troy Deeney on the pitch and uh, yeah he will probably quite enjoy shouldering even more responsibility but we'll see if it's if it's going to pan out in in anything more than than two defeats because that's what everyone will be expecting against Manchester City and Arsenal if they manage to pull this off and get a bounce and get a result against either of those two sides i think they should be lauded as 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 geniuses rather than um bullish ruthless owners that are completely out of touch i think i think probably a lot a lot of a lot of uh, other football fans will think that as well yeah it's certainly a different way of operating but yeah. you you don't know which way is is right in in this day, day and age it certainly appears that nigel pearson wasn't the manager for Watford long term anyway even if this hadn't happened i get a sense that they would have been looking to make a change for next season which begs the question how do they go into these processes? Do they actually do in-depth research on these managers or do they just get recommendations because they're changing so rapidly that it seems more a bit of trial and error than long-term planning? I think it is um, a combination of you know, an extension of their player scouting network. They also look at, at managers, as you would expect, but also they will speak to connected and trusted agents about the availability of, of head coaches. Often they will not try and prize a head coach away from another side um, because they don't want that sort of financial penalty, especially if they're going to have to pay a financial penalty at the other end if they're going to sack him early. In terms of the names that they have been linked with in the past, it will be interesting to see if 
the likes of you know Sabri Lamushi, who's at Nottingham Forest, who was, as I understand it, one who was of interest after Kike Sanchez Flores had left. If it doesn't go to plan for for Nottingham Forest and they don't get promoted into the Premier League, then I wonder whether they might have a look at him. Uh, they were also linked with uh, Marcelino, who was also linked with with Everton and and Arsenal, I believe, as well at, at some stage. So I think in in general terms, what they need to do is actually go back to what they had done previously and recruit a coach that is going to fit the the players that they have recruited. And that means someone that is going to be slightly more progressive. I think Nigel Pearson, and this isn't to discredit him at all, but is he's not a, a forward-thinking, tactical, progressive coach that is looking for, for new ideas. He's, he's, you know, a bit more old school and that's absolutely fine. And he's served a purpose, definitely. He's been more of a firefighter. But I think also what they need to do is, is realise that... In the summer, last summer, when they actually kept faith with Javi Gracia, which was seen as a as a very, very positive step for Watford after, after switching their coaches so many times, they probably made a mistake there. They probably should have stuck to their gut instincts, which is always, let's freshen things up. Because it went stale, and the fact that they didn't really trust him after the defeat against Manchester City in the FA Cup final, which I think they were pretty humiliated by, they probably should have thought, okay, it's not going to be good for PR now, but let's start afresh with a new head coach. And I think if they had done that, however much I, you know, I'm a fan of Javi Gracia as a person, and I think he's also a good football coach, they perhaps should have stuck with their guns uh, and their sort of previous history and changed things at the beginning of the campaign, and they wouldn't have potentially got themselves into such a mess for the rest of the campaign. I think this is a season that Watford will want to forget about but equally uh, they'll hope to maintain their status uh, in this final week of the season. Adam, thank you very much indeed. You can read plenty more from Adam over on The Athletic right now. Plus he shares more detail on the sacking of Nigel Pearson on our Watford podcast from the rookery end. Harry's sponsors the Ornstein and Chapman podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five blade brands. I can vouch for that. If you're anything like me and could do with sharpening up your appearance, give them a go. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close and comfortable shave. As a listener of the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash Ornstein right now that's harrys.com forward slash Ornstein. Finally, a couple of other lines from my column this week. Pochettino turns down Monaco. Yep, that's right. Paul Mitchell, the sporting director newly installed at Monaco, has obviously worked with Maurizio Pochettino at both Southampton and Tottenham. And after sacking the Spaniard Robert Moreno over the weekend... Mitchell offered the Monaco job to Pochettino, uh, as I understand it, but Pochettino declined the opportunity while he continues to assess his options before uh, confirming a return to the dugout. It'd be fascinating to see where that will be. Of course, he's been out of work since leaving Tottenham in November of last year. Instead, Paul Mitchell turned to Niko Kovac and he's already taken his first training session at the Principality Club. So, uh, yeah, 
Pochettino on the market for any clubs out there looking to appoint him but you suspect it will be he who decides uh, where his next turn is and I imagine it will be very high profile. Uh, Mourinho beats Leeds and Celtic to sign top class Wigan midfielder Divine. Yep this refers to the 15 year old Alfie Divine at Wigan. Uh, It's a story reported by my colleague Adam Crafton and it's that the deal is done. Medicals, contracts etc. He'll go into the Tottenham Academy. He has already stepped up to the Wigan first team training picture he's played for the under 23s he actually featured in the youth cup uh, for a few minutes against Tottenham and they'll think they've uh, got a coup here in in one of the most promising young players in the English game so suggests a lot of uh, reports that I've read Uh, I've not personally seen him but it's an example of Tottenham and we're going to see this with other clubs as well taking advantage of the very difficult financial situation at Wigan Athletic uh, after they went into administration uh, they've got a crucial week ahead as they try and avoid relegation from the championship and there's still uncertainty over the whether the points deduction for going into administration um, will stand or not but they've got a lot of talent there and um, it'll be interesting to see who stays and who goes and uh, Divine is is one who has gone and Tottenham fans can look forward to watching him develop. West Ham and Palace lead the chase for Eze. It's a really good player, Eberichi Eze at QPR. He started out at Millwall. Um, then he had to trial uh, for QPR, I think it was in 2016 um, and he's developed uh, fantastically well in a sort of number 10 role, attacking midfield, I think 13 goals. Uh, he's made 40-odd appearances in the championship over the last couple of years. Prior to that, he had half a season on loan at Wickham Wanderers and they loved him there. Really skillful player. Uh, some people have suggested to me he's better on the highlights reel than if you watch him for the full game. And so there's clearly some development to do. West Ham manager David Moyes was at uh, the Kyan Prince Foundation Stadium on Saturday. Uh, and so he will have watched Eze at first hand. Eze, I think, is 22. He's got a year left on his contract, but with an option for QPR to extend it. So they want about £20 million for him. In this climate, realistically, it's going to be lower than that. The transfer market website puts him at, I think, £8.1 million. So they have to find an agreement, I'm sure, somewhere in the middle. Crystal Palace, uh, very keen on him as well. So at the moment, that's a two-horse race. Other clubs, he's been mentioned uh, within, but I don't think the interest is quite there yet. So it looks like uh, Abere Eze is going to be rewarded for his progress with a move to the Premier League. And finally, Warnock not taking any wage from Middlesbrough. Yeah, this is some information we had um, from the Riverside Stadium in that Neil Warnock has actually not been paid a penny since taking over recently uh, at the club. Uh, He's got a good relationship with Steve Gibson, the owner there. And um, he basically wanted to just crack on with the job and trying to improve Middlesbrough's fortunes. I'm certain they will sit down at some point and uh, thrash out some kind of financial agreement. But it indicates the priorities that Warnock had, which was football. um, And I'm sure that was gratefully received by Middlesbrough. And a slightly unusual story in this industry in which we talk about money so often. That's it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.